Good morning. Good to see you. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah. Enjoy to be together, enjoy great food. So we had a, a good time. My in-laws came and smoked a turkey, so it was a blessing. This morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 14. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14 as we're going through uh, the book of Revelation. Also want to invite you out on Wednesday night. We'll be going in depth on this uh, section of scripture on, on Wednesday, so come back and join us on, on Wednesday night. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're in control. We thank you, Jesus, that you, you are coming and, and ruling and reigning. God, we just pray that you would speak to us through your word, that we would be encouraged as we see these voices of victory in the midst of the tribulation, that our voices would be lifted up in victory this morning. So God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's something special about the voice of victory, whether it's a high school football game or it's a family game that you're playing. At, at our house, we, we play to win. So if, if you win, there's usually a, a voice of victory uh, that comes. And what we find in Revelation chapter 14 is there's these voices of victory coming at a very difficult time. It's the middle of the tribulation. It's the middle of God's wrath. God's pouring out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. But yet there's these voices of the 144,000 with a new song. 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. And God has protected them and they're worshiping the Lord. And we also have the voices of three angels. Three angels having a message for the world in the midst of the tribulation. And again, a voice of victory that is spoken during uh, this time. This chapter really divides itself out in, in several ways. First, it's the appearance of the godly remnant of, of Israel. That's 144,000. Then there's the testimony to the world, the angels proclaiming the gospel. Then the fall of Babylon, the great city of Babylon is fallen. There's doom of the worshipers of the beast, judgment for those that are worshiping the Antichrist, the blessedness of, of saints who are martyred, and then the harvest where Jesus comes with his sickle, and then finally the wrath of God on the world. So join me in verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. John in his vision here now sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion. In Psalms chapter 2, there's a prophecy of this. It says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And Psalms 2 is all about Jesus ruling and reigning over the angry nations. And ultimately, this is fulfilled where Christ comes on Mount Zion. Mount Zion really speaks of Jerusalem throughout the scripture and the temple mount. And with him, with Christ, were the 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. The 144,000 we've seen in Revelation chapter 7. And notice now, many chapters later, some time later, in the midst of God pouring out his judgment, he has protected the 144,000. It's not 139,000. It's not 138,000, it's 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. God was faithful to protect them. God has put the, his name upon them. The name of the Father is upon their foreheads. This speaks of God's ownership of them, that they belong to the Lord. 
God has put his name upon us. We're the children of God. We're the sons of God. We're we're the daughters of God. We're not living through the great tribulation. It's clear. When you study the book of Revelation, the the wrath of God hasn't, hasn't begun. But there is trials in our lives, and there is difficulties in our lives. And just like God protected the 144,000, he kept the 144,000. God is keeping us. I'm so thankful that I'm not keeping myself, that I have a Savior who is preserving me and keeping me. And there's this promise in Jude 24, and it says, Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. God's able to keep you. He's able to protect you, keep you from stumbling. He's going to present us faultless before the Father. It's even to the point from God's perspective that he sees us glorified. In Romans, it tells us that we're glorified past tense. You're going to make it. God's going to be faithful to his promise to complete that good work that he started in you. More about the 144,000. I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of a harpist playing their harps. They sang, as it were, with a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. The 144,000 have a song before the Lord, and we know from the next verse that These are men. They're 12,000 men from each of the tribes of Israel. And they're lifting their voice uh, before the Lord. And it's a loud thunder. It's like the voice of of many waters. I don't know how many fit into Broncos Stadium. There's a lot of people that fit into Broncos Stadium. And when they get excited about the Broncos, like when they rarely score a touchdown, (laughs) maybe, maybe next season, right? There's this huge roar that comes for, for the Broncos. Can you imagine the voice of 144,000 all singing to the Lord? When we go to the men's retreat in May, go up to the mountains and a couple hundred men get, get together. And there's something about men's retreat where it just seems that we're ready as men to worship in a greater way. The distractions are removed, the responsibility of work and the worship team's all pumped up and, and our voices are lifted uh, to the Lord. Can you imagine 144,000 guys just going for it in worship to God? They're also playing their harps. If there's any of you men out there that think it's sissy to play a harp, you need to talk to King David. He's the greatest warrior of all time, but yet he played the harp before God. Really, biblical masculinity is to worship the Lord, and, and here they are worshiping God. Their song that they're singing is, is a new song. No one else could sing this song. Isn't that interesting? You, you couldn't learn it even if you wanted to, even if you tried. You, you couldn't. It, it's a song that belonged to them. And I think that really speaks to us as applicable to us in trials that we go through in this life if we're open to it. God's going to do a new work in our lives through that difficulty. He's going to give us a new song. A new song speaks of of freshness in our relationship with God. And somebody else can't sing that song because they haven't gone through that trial. So if you're going through trial and difficulty this morning, is look for God to meet you over time. Look for God to reveal himself to you in a greater way and give you a song. 
There's a few worship songs that I look back at times of difficulty in our lives as a family. And Amber and I will play that worship song from that season and it reminds us of God's faithfulness. It reminds us of how God has saw us through and and these men are are worshipers. God takes the time to give us some detail about the 144,000, I think, to teach us and, and to encourage us. They're referred to as the redeemed, the redeemed from the earth. And as as we look at their character, their character is rich as worshipers, rich in sexual integrity. Where did that character come from? It came from the fact that they were redeemed. It came from the fact that they understood the blood of the lamb, that Jesus had died for for their sins and, and rose again. Knowing the grace of God, knowing the forgiveness of God, then that resulted in the transforming work of God in their lives. They're, they're redeemed. Verse 4, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. They're never married. They're, they're single. A quick reading of this verse, you could think that marriage is bad or that sex inside of marriage is bad, but we've got to look at the whole Bible. Hebrews thirteen four tells us that, that marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. Sex inside of marriage is, is God's gift, but this speaks to the 144,000 were called to singleness and walked in sexual integrity inside of that. For those of you that are, are single, some of you may be called to singleness. You have that peace with the Lord that marriage isn't what God has for you, and you have the opportunity to s- serve God inside of that singleness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 gives us great detail how God can use singleness for his glory and that opportunity for marriage. So if the Lord has called you to that, look at the 144,000 as an example. For all of us, there's a challenge here for sexual integrity. There's a challenge here for sexual purity. We don't have the details of how God used the 144,000, but we have to assume and understand that God did use them powerfully during this time. They must have stood out in their their sexual integrity. Just like you would have 144,000 men singing to God, that would stand out. To have 144,000 Jewish men that are walking in sexual integrity. If you want to stand out for Christ right now in our generation, in our times, walk in biblical sexual integrity. Because it's not what the world is doing. Husbands and wives, be faithful to each other. Fight for that. Rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to to stay committed to each other in sexual purity. Singles, choose to save sex for marriage. Realize God's design. For all of us to say, man, pornography doesn't have a, a place in my life. Could the church be crippled today because of sexual sin? And God's ready to forgive. You Maybe in a place where you look at your past and you go, man, there hasn't always been sexual integrity in my life. Well, praise the Lord that we're the redeemed, amen? Praise the Lord for the blood of Jesus, that he's died for our sins and he's risen again. He's cleansed us from our unrighteousness and we can choose from from this day forward to walk in sexual integrity. We go on in verse four. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They understood the importance of being obedient to the Lamb. Jesus, when he introduced himself to the disciples, he gave this invitation and this challenge, follow me. I want you to follow me. I want to be your Lord. 
I want you to take your marching orders from me. And, and oftentimes in our lives, we get that confused. Jesus, you're in charge. You're the Lord. I'm choosing to follow you. I'm choosing to be obedient. And inside of following Christ, that's the abundant life. If we seek to save our life, we're going to lose it. But if we lose our life for Christ's sake, we're going to find it. Would you say this morning that, man, I'm committed to following the Lamb wherever He goes. Jesus, you're in charge in my life. These were the redeemed from among men being first born to God and to the Lamb. Again, this emphasis of them knowing the redemptive work of Christ. They're the first fruits to God, which indicates that there's more to come. That there's more fruit to come. The 144,000 may not be the only ones. I don't think they're the only ones that are getting saved during the tribulation. They're the first fruits. There's, there's more to come. God's touching hearts during this time of his wrath being poured out. In verse 5, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. There's no deceit in their mouth. They walked in truth and integrity before the Lord. They're without fault before the throne of God. So quite a resume here in Revelation 14 of the 144,000. Paul gives an illustration to Timothy. Timothy's a young pastor and encouraging him to be a vessel that God can use. He gives the illustration that in a house there's vessels for honor and there's vessels for dishonor. Maybe on Thanksgiving you got out some dishes that you don't normally use. Or you got out some silverware that you don't normally use. Maybe something that's been passed down in your family or to make the, the meal special. But then also, you've got a dog bowl, right? You see there's vessels for honor and there's vessels for dishonor. We have a Newfoundland. Uh, she, she's named Quinn. She'll be three in June. If you're not familiar with Newfoundlands, they're, they're large dogs. And they drool when they get excited. And let me just tell you, uh, you would not want to use her bowl at Thanksgiving dinner. Like, that's the dog bowl, and it's kind of gross, right? So the challenge for us is, are we a vessel for honor, or are we a vessel for dishonor? Are we a vessel that God can use? God wants to touch the world with his love. So let me read this to you out of Timothy. It says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master prepared for every good work. Don't we want to be that vessel of honor? Don't we want to be like the, the 144,000? We understand the grace of God and his forgiveness of our sin, but, but also God's ability to, to cleanse our lives. Where we're honest about sin. Lord, would you forgive me? I'm, I'm repenting and turning from sin and, and his work to forgive us and cleanse us to where that we could be a vessel that's prepared for his use. God's saying, I, I want to do work. You're a vessel that I can use. So that's the first victory cry in Revelation 14. And the next is this 
cry of the angel in verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. Try to imagine this. There's an angel just flying in the heavens, proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Aren't you so thankful the gospel's everlasting? What is the gospel? The scripture tells us that the gospel is this, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. It's his death and resurrection for our sins. The angels going throughout the world and proclaiming the gospel to all people groups, every tribe and tongue. And they're hearing the gospel in their own language. This shows the heart of God to see people come to him even in the midst of his wrath being poured out. You've probably noticed how many times, even in this chapter, we've seen Jesus referred to as the Lamb. 27 times in the book of Revelations, Christ is referred to as the Lamb. As Jesus is pouring out God's wrath, the message is clear, he took the wrath for you. He took the punishment for you. You don't have to bear the wrath of God. Jesus took the wrath of God, God for you. This is the heart of God on clear display. This is the ultimate victory cry of the gospel. As we try to navigate this life and put things into context of all of the things that are happening globally and in our country, in our lives personally, like this angel, we can go out with the victory cry of the gospel. We can, we can share the everlasting gospel. God today could choose to put this angel in flight and say, you go proclaim the gospel. But instead, he gives us the privilege. He gives us the opportunity. He says, I want you, church, brothers and sisters through Christ, to go and proclaim the gospel to every creature, to, to share Jesus with others because he delights in, in using us. I'm sure the angels are looking sometimes at God and at us and this responsibility of the gospel going out and saying, hey, coach, just put me in. <laughs> well, why don't, why don't you let me do it? Because those knuckleheads aren't doing it, right? And God's like, no, this is my plan. I want to use my, my children. So the privilege of us to, to be able to, to share the gospel. The feet of those that bring good news. As, as we bring the good news of the gospel, it causes us to have happy feet. I am reminded when I share the gospel with someone that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, no matter how they respond, how good God is. It brings joy in, in my life to, to share the gospel. The second part of this angel's message is fear God, respect him, give him glory, worship him. His judgment has come. His, his wrath has come. And this emphasis that God is the one who has made heaven and earth and sea and springs of the water. It seems that it's being contested that God is the creator even at this point. And the angel says, I want to clear this up once and for all. God's the creator. If an angel were flying through the sky saying that God is the creator, would you believe? Would you believe that he's the creator? Why not let creation itself 
point to the fact that there's a creator. There's design. There has to be a designer. So this debate over evolution and creation, it's cleared up. The angel lets us know God created all things. We have the second angel, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We'll read more of, of Babylon in chapters to come. What is Babylon referring to? There's a lot of thoughts about this. One possibility is maybe the ancient city of Babylon is going to get rebuilt. There's some prophecies in Jeremiah that talk about the complete destruction of, of Babylon. And, and some feel that Babylon, the actual city there in Iraq, may possibly get uh, rebuilt. Who knows? But it is clear to, to say that Babylon speaks of everything that Satan and the Antichrist are up to. If you remember from last week's study, we looked at the one world government, the one world religion, the one world economy. All of the, the influence of the Antichrist is represented in, in Babylon. All of this rejection of who Christ is and the economy that's tied up in it. And here the angel is proclaiming that there's judgment upon Babylon. Babylon is, is fallen. Babylon is going to be destroyed. Babylon had incredible influence if you look at the end of verse 8 because she made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of, of her fornication. So, so Babylon, whatever it is, if it's an actual city, if it, if it speaks of a system, it could be a city, but for sure it speaks of this false religion and false economy, this movement uh, against God. Babylon, it affects and impacts all of the nations of the world, to drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. They, they drank the wine of Babylon, entering into fornication, speaking of spiritual adultery, this rejection uh, of God. Going on to verse 9, Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead, on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The third voice of victory is one of warning, saying, if you take the mark of the beast, then you're going to be entering into the judgment of God. There was the wine of Babylon, and here is the cup of God's indignation, the wine of, of God's judgment. And be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of, of holy angels. There's a lot of believers that have been concerned for a lot of years. Am I, am I taking the mark of the beast and I didn't know it? You don't have to worry about that because you're going to know it. There's going to be an angel flying around in heaven saying, hey, don't do this. Don't take the, the mark of the beast. If you take the mark of the beast, you're going to be giving your allegiance to the Antichrist and you're going to be experiencing the judgment of God. We think of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And here we see reference to the cup of his indignation. 
Jesus took the cup of God's judgment, the Father. The Bible calls it propitiation or atonement, where he appeased the wrath of the Father for us. And he's saying, if there's any other way to let this cup of judgment pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus took the cup of the Father's judgment so that we could take the cup of forgiveness. When we celebrate communion, what did Jesus say? This cup is given to you of the blood of my new covenant. It's God's contract with us. We're lifting up the cup of forgiveness. We're celebrating the new covenant. If we don't receive that cup of forgiveness, then ultimately we're going to have the cup of God's judgment, the cup of his indignation. In verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. It's very clear from verses 10 and 11 that there's an eternal punishment for those that reject Christ. And the teaching of heaven is biblical. And the teaching of heaven fills our hearts with hope, as we'll see more in just a few verses. But the teaching of hell is biblical. Jesus talked of, he- of hell, this eternal separation from God. And it's not our place to change or edit the scriptures. This is not I Bible. <laughs> this is the Holy Bible. The- this is God's word. And so as we look at the promises of heaven, we also look at the reality of God's judgment, of someone rejecting Christ as their Savior, standing before a holy God and being separated from God for all of eternity. And it's sobering, isn't it? It's sobering to, to stop and think of what we've just read, that there's eternal torment for those that reject Christ. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commands of God and the faith of Jesus. This is the patience of the saints to know that God's going to make things right, that God's going to, to set things right. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So you have those that have rejected Christ in the tribulation, receiving the mark of the beast, and they have eternal torment. But then you have those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, who've gotten saved during the time of the tribulation, and there's this comfort of heaven. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. You're going to enter into the rest that, that God has for you. As they're going through the tribulation, and if they're martyred or if they're killed through these events, there's this comfort that they're going home to be with the Lord. As I look at this, if the rapture was something that hadn't happened yet, wouldn't the encouragement to these believers be, hey, hold on, the rapture's coming soon. But what's the encouragement to them? Not that the rapture's coming, but that you're dying. You're, you're going to die, and that's okay. You're going to enter into the rest of the Lord. The comfort's not the rapture. The comfort is actually death. But we're told in First Thessalonians to comfort each other with the teaching of the imminence of the rapture that the rapture could be coming at any possible moment. There is a principle here for us in verse 13 as believers, and that is that rest is coming in eternity. If you're not feeling very rested right now, hopefully we get some rest, but 
ultimately rest is coming in heaven. This isn't to the point where we hate this life or we commit suicide. God's given us this life. We're, we're to live this life to the fullest, to look forward to eternal life, but also see the purpose that he has in the here and now. I hope you see purpose in your, in your life now, that God loves you. He's got plans for your life. He wants to use you to encourage others, touch others with, with the love of Jesus Christ. So it's not that we hate this life. We look forward to eternal life. God's perspective of death is completely different than ours for believers. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. He looks forward to bringing us home to be with him. So if we contrast these two, we have those that don't know the Lord that are eternal torment. Those that do know the Lord entering into eternal rest. In verse 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. A reference to Christ. Christ is, is sitting on the cloud and on his cloud in this vision he has a sickle. And this speaks of Christ's judgment, of him harvesting, of him being able to sort out the wheat and the tares. In verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. God's judgment is coming right out of the temple. His holiness from, from who he is. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. We don't know when these events are going to take place, but it does seem from our perspective that the world is ripe for Christ's judgment. Why is God waiting? What is he waiting for in order to bring his judgment on a Christ-rejection world. He's waiting for more people to get saved. He's tarrying, he's waiting because he's gracious and he's kind and he wants to see more and more people come to know Christ their Savior. How many more people have come to know Jesus just in the last two years? And from our perspective, we're like, God, it would have been great if the rapture would have happened in 2019. That would have been awesome, Right? But God's like, look how many more people have been saved. Look how many more people have come, come to know me. As Christ's judgment comes here, the world's ripe for harvest. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a parable, and he said that a farmer went out to sow his seed. The wheat started to come up, but at night his enemy came and sowed tares amongst the wheat. If you've ever gardened, do you feel like that? Like, like who sowed all these weeds? I, I put in good seed and there's these weeds, right? So the servants were wanting to go after the tares. And the master said, no, if you start pulling out the tares, you're going to pull out the weed as well. And then Jesus gives meaning of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And this is what he said in Matthew 13. Verse 40, he says, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will be at the end of this age. Notice Jesus' emphasis, the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things 
that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus and his angels come and sort this out, the wheat and the tares. Those that know the Lord, those that don't know the Lord. This as well is sobering. At the end of our lives, we're going to stand before God, no one else. Not going to stand before our spouse or our parents or a pastor or a mentor. We're, we're going to stand before God. And only those who trust Christ for salvation, only those that believe in their heart that Jesus died for their sins and rose again are going to be saved. They're, they're the wheat. They're the children of God. And God knows the hearts. So it's a good time for us to stop and examine our hearts and go, do I know the Lord? Have I trusted Christ for salvation? Do I believe that he's my savior, that he died for me and rose again? Now remember, we're not examining our performance. That's not what saves us. It's not a works-based salvation. We're looking at our heart of hearts going, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus loves me, that he died for my sins, that he rose again. I've invited him to be the Lord of my life. And there's that assurance from the Holy Spirit of salvation. His spirit bears witness with, with our spirit. I wonder if we'll be surprised a little bit in heaven or we'll go, I, I didn't really think that they were a believer. And God knew their heart and they were a believer. They're wheat and they're home with the Lord. And there's someone else that we were certain was a believer. They've got to be a believer. But it turns out they were a tear. It, it turns out they, they didn't know, know the Lord. We don't sort this out for anybody else. In our own hearts, we, we look to the Lord. As you examine that question, if you go, man, I've never trusted Christ for salvation. I've gone to church. I've tried to be a good person. But I've never believed that Jesus is God, that he died for my sins and rose again. Man, today's the day to be saved. Today's the day to turn to Christ. Eternity is real. And God ultimately is going to sort out the wheat and the tares. In verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a, a sharp sickle. So this really lines up with Matthew 13, where we see Jesus saying, At the end of the age, the angels will go out with this sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are, are fully ripe. So we've got two illustrations. One, that the harvest is ready, the world's ready to be judged, and the grapes are ready. The, the grapes are at a point where they're ready to be harvested, and both of this speak of God's judgment. They're ripe for judgment. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. God's wrath, God's punishment on a Christ-rejecting world. The illustration is, is a grape that's being crushed and this Christ-rejecting world is being crushed. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came up of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,680 furlongs. It's roughly 180 miles. So as God's judgment comes upon the world, and specifically here upon Jerusalem, then from Jerusalem is all of this bloodshed 
wear the blood up to the horse's bridle for 180 miles. In Joel 2, or Joel 3, verse 12, it speaks of this. It says, Let the nations be weakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, or the valley of Jezreel. For there I will sit to judge all of the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Again, we see this image of the the sickle in Joel's prophecy, in Joel's writing. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. Similar language that we see in Revelation 14. The vats overflow, for the wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of derision. This valley of Jehoshaphat. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of derision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. God's going to gather the nations together. And the nations begin to, to turn against God, the battle of Armageddon. God's judgment comes and blood flows through this valley of Jezreel. It's humbling to be in Israel, to be in a place where you can look out on the valley of Jezreel and know that at some point it's going to turn into huge bloodshed and just be completely filled with blood. And God, God's judgment is, is coming. You know, I got to tell you, I really know how to pick uh, Thanksgiving encouragement. <laughs> you know, between last week and, and this week, last week with looking at the Antichrist and this week looking at God's judgment. But this is where my heart has landed as I read through these chapters, is it does cause me to appreciate the work of Christ in a greater way. To understand what it is that Jesus went through on the cross when he took my sin upon himself and took the judgment of the Father. We have our view of sin, and then there's God's view of sin. So when we look at chapters like this, it causes us to see how bad our sin really is. Our sin does deserve God's judgment. It does deserve eternal separation from God, deserves hell. But instead of God giving us his judgment, he gives us his grace. He gives us his forgiveness in what the work of Christ accomplishes, what the lamb, the spotless lamb accomplishes for us. The gospel is so deep, but yet it's so simple. Isn't it amazing from a biblical perspective, from God's truth, when we trust the gospel, when we trust Jesus for salvation, all of our sins are forgiven? You're never more or less forgiven from that point forward. It's not that God rates us on a tier system, and he's like, well, okay, you trusted Christ as your Savior, But then when you start reading your Bible, I'll forgive you a little bit more. Oh, you you started tithing. Now now you're really forgiven. Oh, you took it another step further and you're you're sharing the gospel now. Well, well now you're, you're super forgiven. You're extra forgiven. The gospel is the moment, the moment that we trusted Christ for salvation, all of our sins were forgiven. We're not more or less loved. Isn't that amazing? 
The moment that we trusted Christ for salvation, we're loved and, and accepted by God. God's not going, well, you know, you finally got your act together, so now you're my child. The gospel is you trust Christ, and through the finished work of Christ, you're an adopted son and, and daughter of God. And these chapters bring us to the weight and the magnitude of what that really means that Christ accomplished for us on the cross, which does cause us to be thankful, which does cause us in the midst of our tribulation, in the midst of our difficulty, like the 144,000 to say, I'm going to sing to the Lord. God, you've given me a song. I'm going to go out and I'm going to proclaim the the everlasting gospel. I, I understand that there is an eternity, and I want people to, to know Christ as their Savior. But also, this chapter does cause me to have a heart for those that don't know Jesus, to have a heart for the lost. I mean, how can we read this of heaven and hell, eternal torment, and not break for those that don't know Jesus? It's so important to God that he sends an angel to declare his message would may, we maybe go out of our way, right in line with God's way, to those that don't know Christ as their Savior? It's not always easy to be around unbelievers. But remember, we were lost. We didn't know Christ as our, as our Savior. Was there a believer that had patience with you, that loved you, that cared for you, that shared the gospel, that, that prayed for you? And for us to, to sit in the weight of, of God's judgment the depth of God's judgment and say, man, I want to see the lost found. God has given us a mission. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit to love, to love differently than the world. Isn't this a tremendous time to go out and show the love of Jesus Christ? The world's confused. The world's looking for answers to proclaim the everlasting gospel. So this chapter causes us to rejoice in what Christ has done for us, and it also moves our heart to to love, care, serve, and reach out with the gospel. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we look at this chapter, we, we read this chapter, and it is sobering. It causes us to see the weight of our sin, how offensive our sin is to you, God that we deserve this kind of punishment, but you, Jesus, took it for us on the cross, and we're thankful. Jesus, we love you. We thank you the moment that we believe that we're forgiven, we're saved, we're loved and accepted by you, that we get to live from that place of forgiveness and acceptance. And Lord, help us to have a heart for the lost. Would you fill us with your spirit Would you pray for two or three people that the Holy Spirit just brings to mind that doesn't know the Lord? Would you just lift them up by name to the Lord? Maybe you've been praying for them for a long time. Just just continue to pray for them. God, we pray for open doors, opportunities to, to share your name. Lord, we pray for those this morning that are making decisions to receive you or reject you. Would you you speak to them? Would you show them your love? In Jesus' name, amen.